if you're listening to this podcast and you don't take anything else away from this conversation, if you are buying a deal built in the mid 70s or sooner, you need to check your fucking pipes. <laughs> check the cast iron because they it corrodes. You can have all kinds of issues. And if you don't inspect your pipes on one of those deals, it is going to eat your lunch. I have seen repipes come up and it is it's bad if you don't inspect. It's a deal killer. It's a deal killer. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers and I want to thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. And this episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. At their core, Fort Capital is a privately owned real estate investment firm, but beyond that, they are committed to technology and a world-class culture, which leads to a very forward-thinking mentality. Do you want to stay in the know on all things Fort Capital? Be sure to follow Fort Capital on LinkedIn and sign up for the quarterly newsletter on www.fortcapitallp.com. Fort Capital's quarterly newsletter subscribers are the first to receive business and real estate insights, news, videos, podcasts, free resources, and more. I have with me today, M. Stanfield from Twitter, Rubber Mallet Capital. Uh, Last night, this show is going to start different uh, than it's about to. I got an email uh, from Elliot, and he described a situation that he arrived to in Texas, which I think sets a great tone for what we're going to talk about and the good work that he's doing and the housing that he owns. Um, A lot of the stuff we talk about is class A, even class B, even class C, but this is just different. Um, This is a different part of the world that is often... um, doesn't get covered enough. And I think it sets the tone for the work that needs to be done here to continue to chip away at, at what otherwise be considered a problem. Um, so Elliot, let's kind of start there. You land in Texas and let's just walk through what the landlord of the properties that, that you kind of play in, what might happen at these, uh, properties. Sure. So, uh, first, thank you for having me on. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited too. So yesterday, I was supposed to fly out of San Antonio to come to Dallas, get ready to do this podcast. Uh, And I get a call from my property manager, another property that we own in Texas. And she's on the edge of tears and says, basically, you need to get here. Uh, There was a shootout in the parking lot. Two people have been murdered. And I'm standing on the, you know, I'm on the fucking jetway, right? And, uh, you know, I get kind of shaky just talking about it. And so I scramble off. I say, cancel my flight. And I sprint and I grab a rental car uh, and I drive to the property and there's detectives, you know, the police are there, the ambulance are there. It's, um, I don't know. I got from San Antonio to Austin in rush hour in like an (laughs) hour and 15. I mean, I was booking and I show up and the staff is sort of hunkered down in the community building and, you know, reports are kind of patchy coming in and, and thankfully two people weren't murdered. Uh, but someone got shot and it wasn't the intended target. It was a fucking kid. It was a child. It was an 11 year old kid. He gets shot in the shoulder, uh, a stray bullet. Yep. And 
um, you know, there's bullets sticking out of cars, there's bullets in the side of the building. They were just shooting it out in the street and it spilled out and it's going over to the, you know, the Waffle House across the street and the apartment building next door. And they just make these horrible decisions. And it was just some stupid argument. You know, uh, I, I honestly don't know what, what it was that they were arguing about. Uh, fortunately, nobody got murdered. And the kid is, uh, you know, moderately injured and he's in the hospital now. And it sounds like he's going to pull through and be fine. And you asked me before we started recording, what's it like? Because I'm out there talking to the father of the child who just mm. got shot. And you just had a kid. Yep. All right. Your, yeah. Is that your third? It's my third. Yeah, he's so a week you, old. Right. So I think your reaction, if one of your children had just been shot in front of you, would be structurally different than his. And I was talking to him and he said... Basically, well, you know, he's a tough kid. He'll pull through, right? That He's a tough kid. He'll pull through. And I just thought, what a horrible frame of reference that this is, I mean, bad for him. Maybe not super unexpected and definitely a function of his path through life that this kind of shit happens from time to time. And... I don't know if anyone who listens, I'm sure. I mean, we're in Texas. A lot of people who listen must be shooters. And if you shoot, if the barrel of your gun is off by a millimeter, that bullet goes from the kid's shoulder to his heart and he's dead. And that's it. Yep. Right? And so that doesn't happen every day. That's not, it's not the okay corral at our projects. And we don't buy dangerous housing and keep it dangerous. We're not slumlords. We put a ton of money into these deals. But this shit happens. Uh, and we have security there at night. We have security cameras. And it's just a part of the housing system that I think a lot of people in the real estate industry like to, you know, they kind of like it over there. Like, oh, yeah, affordable housing, but that's not really our, you know. Yep. We don't really know what happens. Seems bad. Yeah, we watch it on TV. Yeah, Right. And so that's the shit that I deal with. I carry a gun on the properties because you need to. And sometimes people say, well, you know, why do you have a gun? I think, well, you know, especially, right, I live in New England. The idea that you would carry a concealed weapon in New England, people think, well, that's crazy. You know, in Texas, it's a little more acceptable, but um, that's what it's like at, at some of these properties. And it's not all the time. And it's a fraction of the residents. Yeah. It's like you had said earlier, it's 2% of your residents who cause problems. Yeah. But in the class A deal, you have two percent. I don't even know. I don't own class A, but in class A, the two percent that cause problems are the like super high maintenance people who want you to change their light bulbs and <laughs> they're bitching about changing the temperature of the hallway or whatever, you know, first world problem they've manufactured. And you think, God, I don't want to deal with, you know, Mike and all his issues. Uh the two percent of our properties are dangerous people. Yep. Right? Yeah. And we are gonna spend for those listening a lot of this episode talking about where when he buys properties in the full life cycle to where he takes them to and how he works to make these communities better but i want to stay on this topic for a little bit because there's one other thing we talked about before we turned on the mic the culture that happens so when you hear a father just say well you know he's tough he'll get out of it that is rooted in some type of culture that that one listening might say like this is more normal than one might think and what we were talking about was it's not like these folks, when we're thinking about the, 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 the places that this could occur, these people don't wake up thinking I'm a killer. No. These people wake up and it's like the 2% of their life where it can kick in and the rest of the day, they're trying to make progress. They are trying to get out of a t 
tough situation. And you just had a good job of kind of talking about what it's like to live in that kind of situation from a manager's situation and then what you're doing to, I mean, honestly, which is remarkable, pull people out of an otherwise tough situation. Yeah, people don't, the, the kids in these communities don't wake up and think, I'm going to, you know, I want to be a gangbanger. Uh, they often just have the same hopes and dreams that, that you and I have. What is so hard and what we really work to try and help with is they are sort of limited by their field of view. They only know the world that they're in every day. And so we do our best to try and provide resident services, to uh, try and work with these kids to help them make better decisions, to get them involved in working at the property, to try and bring positive role models to the community. But, but that only goes so far, right? Their interaction with us is a fraction of their day, but they go home and their parents, I mean, poverty is cyclical. Those decisions are cyclical. It is very, very hard to break. And so the only people who are, uh, you know, kind of working with these kids or spending any time with them, you know, it's, it's the gangbangers. That's who they see outside hanging out, smoking a joint, drinking, talking to chicks, driving a cool car. That's the thing. Yep. Right. And so you've got maybe your most consistent meal is your school lunch. That's a fact. That was the worst part about COVID was that kids weren't getting even a square lunch. Breakfast is sometimes like a bag of fucking Doritos. Yeah. And so you send a kid to school hungry and they can't focus and all that. Anyway, they get this square. And so, you know, they're looking around and thinking, I don't love how this is going. I, I'm, you know, eight, but I'm old enough to understand that there's other stuff out there. And the only people I see who seem to be enjoying themselves, we're going out to restaurants, we're talking to, you know, talking to girls or wearing cool shoes or whatever it is that you kind of want is often the drug dealers and the gangbangers. Yep. And so you're going to tell that kid, no, 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 that's not for you. You need to study. Fuck that. My parents didn't know, you know, that's not, what do you mean I have to go to college? That path isn't well paved. Yep. Right. Uh, and so there, there's a ton of negative influences and you need to get super lucky to get out of that. Despite our best efforts, you need to get really lucky. And so the narrative of, well, I just pulled myself up by my bootstraps is bullshit. Like you have a few people who help you out. I'm sure if you look at your life, there's been a couple of forks in the road where an opportunity presented itself and you chose door one instead of door two and you worked your butt off. But those little breaks here and there have made a difference to you. And if you never get that shot, if no one ever says, why don't you come over here and try this? I mean, your world is, it stays pretty small. I think the older I get, I think it's common for everybody, though. I feel more and more by the day how lucky and fortunate that I've been. Um, it's it's cool in your you know late teens, early 20s to think you're doing everything on your own and to realize I had a father that loved me and parents that loved me and their friends that loved me and you know people that helped me make good decisions. And then I look at like, you know, when we go to college, it's probably the worst four years of decision making you make during college. Like, well, what happens? Your influence changes for those four years. Yeah. Like you can clearly look at every stage of your life and look at the five people closest to you are going to shape kind of who you are. So what I want to do from here, I think we've set the tone for the problems. Uh, and this isn't the only problem in the world, but especially as we talk about real estate, a place where there can be huge impact. I want to talk about the life cycle of a deal, what a deal might look like from the day you spot it 
to how you finance it, to how you manage it, to how you turn things around, what residential service uh, programs do for people, and ultimately how you make money. Because you've been vocal that as much as this is about doing well, you can actually make money doing this too. Yeah, and I'm I'm pretty clear about that point because I think you know nobody believes the guy who says we're just doing it for the greater good. That's right. like a thin pitch. Yeah, right. Uh, so I like to be candid that you can make good money in this business. Yep. Right. And then I think if you're honest about the motives, then people are more inclined to listen to you on some of the other stuff, some of the social goods, some of those programs. But if I just said to you, Chris, I'm on a I'm on a mission from God to provide affordable housing, a lot of people go, okay, man. Yeah. yeah. yeah right. Give it a rest. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it, it's okay to admit that you're doing things for a profit. I think. Um, yeah. No. Could I? It's could the I make, truth. It's the truth. It's the, <laughs> yeah. It's the truth. And and so that allows me to provide for my family. It allows my staff to provide for theirs. Yep. Um, you know, could you make more money in a different space? Yeah, probably. For could, sure. Could you, you know, work in a less dangerous and crazy environment definitely all right let's start let's set the stage for what a project just describe what a fastball project might look like like what is the condition that it's in not just physically but the type of community that's there like the issues that you're walking into when you're looking at a deal that's going to be great for your business yeah a lot of what we're buying these days are and and when you think about the term affordable housing or low-income housing... Define it to, in your yeah, world. Yeah. So uh, affordable housing, low-income housing, those are interchangeable terms that serve to describe a pretty broad basket of things in the way that saying, um, you know, cars or bottled water is an accurate description of a thing, but there's many subcategories. There's lots of different programs. So uh, affordable and low-income housing are kind of interchangeable when you talk about serving the most at-risk uh, uh, renters. So what we're buying now are projects, typically projects that are built with a low-income housing tax credit, and they're usually over 200 units that tend to be bigger projects built um, in the mid-2000s is about what we're looking for. We will buy some stuff that's older, uh, but that's kind of our bread and butter deal. And so what we're looking for is typically a deal that there's uh, a bit of a value-add component we do deeper value add on older projects, but staying with your kind of down the middle pitch here. Uh, it's a value add deal where maybe you're coming in with ten or $15,000 per door. You're kind of splitting that between deferred maintenance and property upgrades. You are trying to identify a project where there is some room to raise the rent, uh, but all the rents are capped. And I think this was a question that someone asked on Twitter. Like, yeah. how do you look at, if your rents are capped, what's the play? Uh, sometimes you've got a kind of dilapidated project. You know, you think, well, it's only 15 years old, but these tenants can wear a place out, right? A 15-year-old tax credit project can look, you know, yeah, pretty 40 warm. years old. Yeah. So uh, the low-income housing tax credit space, the renters pay 30% of their income. Uh, some of them get Section 8 vouchers, but for the sake of argument, they're paying full freight. So they're kind of in the market making decisions about where do I want to live. And if you have substandard housing product, then typically there's a, a pretty big mark to market between where your rents are today and where the max tax credit rent could be. So maybe it's $150, let's say. And so we're trying to understand, is there a reasonable value add program that will let us roll those rents? And typically it takes us four years because that's about enough time for the building to fully turn over. We don't just like show up and raise everybody's rent $150. Yeah. Right? Because that's just... I don't know, 
structurally, that's not how I want to operate. Yeah. So we look at why. Um, I don't want to make money just raking poor people over the coals. Yeah. You know, uh, we bought a project in Dallas that was an affordable housing project and the prior owner removed it from the program. There's a process you can do that. It's called qualified contract. Uh, it's an option on certain projects. So they made the decision. We don't want to be affordable anymore. So we're pulling out of the program. So I bought a deal that was not technically deed restricted, but it's low income senior housing. And we spent a lot of nights, me, the analyst, talking about what is the correct way to do this? Because there's no scenario where my company is going to be associated with raising rents and evicting low-income seniors. We're just not. Aside from the fact that it would be bad for business, I just like personally can't get behind that. I mean, we, we make enough money. I, I don't need to. If the difference between, let's say, a levered 15 and a levered 18 is fucking over grandma yeah you got to be a monster man like you that's horrible yep. so we made the decision that we were going to continue honoring the low-income housing tax credit rent for the renters who had moved in at the time when it was affordable housing and that new renters were just moving to the community would pay whatever the market rent was at the time but real quick you said pulled out of the program just real quick again what is the program the program is a capped rent what else that's it that's it okay. yeah so uh, let me explain the low-income housing tax credit process. Yeah. Like the cliff note version. Yeah. Uh, so basically, you're a developer. Yeah. You want to build new affordable housing. You find a site in Texas, here in Fort Worth, and you think this would be great for 200 units. You have to apply for low-income housing tax credits. And there's a an eye-watering process that, uh, I mean... Imagine if the DMV was one of your LPs, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like that kind of thing. And so, uh, but all goes well and they say, Chris, you're right. This is a terrific project. And you say, I need $10 million in tax credits in order to subsidize the construction where I can afford to rent it out at below market rents. That's the trade, right? It's the upfront subsidy. And so they say, here you go. Here's $10 million in credits. But that's just, it's paper. It's a million dollars every year. It's a reduction in your federal tax liability. Now, you may have a need for that, but you, what you probably need is the upfront equity. So you sell those credits to a large LP, a Bank of America, Washington Mutual, whoever, and they buy it for some, you know, 90 cents on the dollar, 88, 92, just depends on the market, right? Market forces dictate that. Uh, so let's say you send it for, you sell it for 90 cents on the dollar, you now have $9 million in equity. So you start building. The trade that you make is we're going to, rent our units at a certain percentage of area median income or AMI. Uh, and it's not standardized. Like the, the default is 60% of AMI, but these credits are competitive. So now there's a scenario where you and I are both submitting for that site. And I say, well, I'm going to do half my units at 60 and the other half at 50% of AMI. And so the state goes, well, that's a more attractive proposition. That's a deeper set aside that helps more at-risk people, you know. So every project is different. How is the uh, how is the rate like? Who is the company that 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 understands what the rate is? Is that, is that objective or subjective? Like, do you hire one firm that sets that number, or could each developer say, "Our guys say it's a thousand dollar average rent," and the next group says, "Well, ours say it's twelve hundred average rent." Like, 
Oh, uh, you mean the rent that the tenants pay? Yeah, like Sorry, who's yep. setting what the me- like that you're basing the median off of? Yeah, so uh, it it is not subjective. It's okay. set by HUD. Okay, uh, every year they pull data from the American Community Survey and from the Census Bureau, and they kind of track CPI and try to understand what's happening in a market. And so they will determine what they believe to be the area median income, and then base all the rents off of that. Typically, it's like like Tarrant County has one rent level. But every property may have different rents that the tenants pay. And uh, the reason is, let's say the maximum rent is $1,000. The tenant is only supposed to pay 30% of their income towards rent and utilities. Mm-hmm. So if you're renting at $1,000, but the tenant has to pay electric, then they get what's called a utility allowance. So your rent, to offset them paying $25 a month in electric, you can only charge nine seventy five. And then if you have natural gas, heat versus electric heat, like there's these little offsets. So each property is going to have a slightly different rent depending on unit size, depending on what utilities are included or not included. But that's that's how the rent is set. In a world right now where rents are just obviously going up 20, 30, 40% a year, do the cat do the ceilings move that quickly in, in HUD or are they still keeping them pretty low? Um, they They moved this year. I mean, there were... There were markets that were seeing 15% rent increases, 15% growth in AMI. And there were some developers on Twitter who were kind of saying, oh, this is great, you know, 12%, 10%. And I think, you know, I'd, I'd throttle back on the celebrating about the rent increase because the, in the flip side of that coin is that now you're going to say to your tenants, here's some exciting news. Yeah. You know, um, so how you navigate that, like, we could raise our rents on one of our projects. We got a 12% rent increase allowed. And we're working through the renewal process and trying to work with the residents to understand what is tolerable. And that seems to be somewhere between 5 and 6%. Now, you're not going to get a 12% rent increase every year. So we could get 5 or 6% this year. And then on a renewal, maybe we rent it out at whatever the appropriate level is. But, but the biggest thing is to figure out how it's going to impact your tenant base. Okay. You gave me the fastball mid-2000s, but you made a comment. You said you told me to give you the fastball. Yeah. What might something else look like that's not mid-2000s that yeah. you bought? Yeah, some hairy shit. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's get into yeah. the hairy yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the easy one is uh, is that kind of mid-2000s, you know, they all sort of look the same. Yeah, siding. So, yeah. So some hairy shit is like a Section 8 deal that's built in 1974. And it needs a full repipe because we go in and we check the cast iron. And if if you're listening to this podcast and you don't take anything else away from this conversation, if you are buying a deal built in the mid 70s or sooner you need to check your fucking pipes (laughs) check the cast iron because they it corrodes you can have all kinds of issues and if you don't inspect your pipes on one of those deals it is going to eat your lunch i have seen repipes come up and it is it's bad if you don't inspect it's a deal killer it's a deal killer so we're buying a deal right now that needs a full repipe and given that the market has shifted uh, I've had some wonderful conversations with the seller and we, we were upfront. I said, given when it was built, here's the only caveat. Like, this is my offer. I'm not going to retrade you. I'm telling you, I have to inspect the pipe. So he needs a, it's like $5 million for the repipe work. Cause you have to trench out under the building. Um, and so he said, well, why don't we split that? I said, that's adorable. Like <laughs> I, you must think it's January, buddy. You can eat shit. Uh, not only am I not going to do this at cost, I want an extra two million for a return on hassle, so I cut the price seven million. 
and he was, you know, understandably perturbed. Yeah. Um, but he's coming back around and we're getting a deal done because it's either that or, I mean, the pipes are corroded. There's like, how do you check pipes? You just go dig a hole in the ground and find where the pipe is. Yeah. So, and is that all underground pipes or are you checking what's in buildings too? It's all the cast iron. Whatever's in the building is, okay. is, is fine. Cause they're okay. not going to run cast iron up, you know, it's, yeah. it's just the sewer lines that are really the issue. So we'll hire a plumbing company and they, they send in little cameras and they scope the pipes and we get a full report on the buildings. How, what does the tenant base look like in a project like that versus mid two thousands? Rougher. Yeah. Rougher. Um, section eight deals are, um, they tend to be the roughest housing stock. So we used to own a section eight deal in Springfield, uh, Massachusetts. And the tenants would steal the trash doors. Like we, it was a high rise. And I don't know if it was junkie strength. I don't know what it was. They would pry the doors off of the concrete. We'd use liquid nails and attach that fucker. They'd pry the doors off and sell it for scrap metal. Yeah, it was an interesting clientele. And it, so that deal's kind of rough. So you got a rougher tenant base. They are for sure the lowest income. Um, and there's always a mix of people who are gaming the system and people who genuinely, genuinely need that support. Right. And it's the same kind of deal. It's not, not every tenant is rough. It's the two or 3% that are rough. And just describe really quick, like what it takes to get approved by section eight is everybody like when you think of like a homeless issue, could a homeless person get section eight? Is there some minimum qualification for the government giving you money? And are there tiers of what the government will give you based on the type of background that you have. If you're not a criminal, you get more money. I mean, I, like, how does it work? Or is it just... Yeah. Uh, you, you really opened Pandora's box. Well, come on. Yeah, this no, is no. Podcast. It's, it's um, yeah, there's the, so the first thing is that there's always a shortage of Section 8 vouchers. Okay. The reason is that the Section 8 voucher allows me as a renter to move to your apartment building. And I pay 30% of my income, whatever that number is. And then the housing authority pays the difference between the rent that you set and what I'm able to pay. Right. So rent is $1,000 and I pay $150 a month in rent. The housing authority cuts you, the landlord, a check for $850. And it's always on time. That's a good part. And it's always on time. Um, that allows tenants, and it's, it's hard because not every state, except like in certain states, discriminating against Section 8 vouchers is illegal. So tenants have a lot more ability to move around. Um, the wait list for Section 8 vouchers can be years long. Years. Uh, Harris County down in Houston just opened up their Section 8 list for the first time, I think it was three years ago, and they got 30,000 applications over the weekend, and they had to shut the list off again. And the wait list is years long because it, it can pull people out of housing instability. And is that because there's not enough units to be able to fit those tenants because there's, there's no money. budget? Not enough, okay. There's not uh, enough money. How do you, what does a gaming the system look like? Uh, gaming the system just means that there are certain people who have been dealt a bad hand and mm -hmm. they really do need that support. Mm -hmm. And then there are other people who have figured out that they can do jobs for cash or they can get paid under the table or they can do whatever, or some people Got are it. selling drugs. Some people are, they're just, they don't need that resource, but they're using it. It's, it's, it's not the majority, right? It's not that everyone's a grifter. Um, yep. It's just that, that there's an element of that and you see it happening and you know it. Like if you go to Section 8 property, there's a lot of older cars, but there's a couple of new Escalades and there's a couple of new Mercedes. 
So you're telling me you can afford to pay $140 a month because your income is, you know, $400, whatever it is. But your car payment's 1500 bucks. Yeah. Right. Yep. I get it. Uh, and it's, that's by no means the majority. And I don't want to paint section eight that way, but you, there is an element to that. But the good thing about section eight also is, and I used to own a bunch of section eight here in Fort Worth. And, but this was 12, 14 years ago. The one thing I did like was that they came and they did, I think, biannual inspections of the unit. So part of receiving your voucher is you got to keep the place relatively clean. Yeah. Yes, you're, you're absolutely correct. My hesitation is that um, here's what happens. You get a Section 8 voucher, you move into my property. You don't keep the place clean. Housing comes by and inspects. When you, when you first get a voucher and you move in, they come by like once a month for a while to check and make sure that you're, because some of these people are coming off the streets right? and they need some guidance on like, here's, here's some of the basics of living and providing for yourself in a home. But if you just decide, I'm not going to keep this place clean, Section 8 says we're not going to subsidize this. So they stop paying the voucher. So now you're living in my place and you have no ability to pay rent. Mm -hmm. And so now I have to, what am I going to, you, I can't afford to just have you live there for free. Yeah. And so now what, you go back out on the street, right? What's the alternative here? And so the hardest part for me, and I, I say this often, it's the, the kids and the animals. Cause you'll go into some of these units and you see, you see people who are in just the throes of depression and they're living in squalor and they know it's squalor. They're not, crazy and don't think anything's wrong they just life has been so fucking hard for so long that the idea that you would like clean your place up is you just your brain you can't get there and so you go into some of these units to like fix a sink and you see a, a like a toddler running around in filth or an animal who's being abused and it makes me fucking nuts oh. and you like I have screamed at parents and I pull them out of the unit. I don't dress them down in front of their kids, but it doesn't do any good. Yeah. It's, I think it's selfishly just for me to like vent and just chew them out and go, who do you think you are to, to, to live like this? And so you sort of drop into their world. Cause you, I mean, you know, how did you go to one of your properties and your maintenance guy's like, Oh shit, Chris, I have to, let me show you this thing. Yeah. Right. And so you go into a unit and, and in the industrial world, this thing is like, I don't know. I'm not an industrial. Builder, yeah. That's why I don't talk about it. Right? I'm yeah. pretty careful about where my expertise ends. But there's a thing that you get shown, a rooftop unit that you need to see that's malfunctioning. So sometimes maintenance guys will bring me in and be like, here's the problem with the water heaters that we ordered. So you go into someone's home and you, you, you're standing outside and things are fine. And then you walk into someone's world and it's just, it's grisly. It's, it sucks and it's hard to watch. And so that kid, that toddler who's just living in filth with a mom who's not really able to provide for him or a dad who's not able to provide for him, eventually they grow up and they think, I'm tired of living like this. Who do I know has disposable income? Oh, that guy who's hanging out outside doing hand-to-hands. He's got disposable income. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yep. And so that's the thing that, that kind of, it gets to me when, you know, you get shit like people, you know, I live in kind of a, a nice neighborhood and uh, people look down on you for being affordable housing developer. Like they won't say it. Yeah. They'll say nice things like, oh, isn't that great? Oh, that's good. That's really important work. Get the fuck out of here. You don't really think that. Yeah. And they sort of look at you like, oh, yeah, 
that stuff over there. Slumlord. Yeah, yeah. And I think, one, we, we pour a pile of money into renovating these projects, but set aside the fact that I think that we're doing good work at the property. You know, they, there's a part of it that they don't understand. You see humanity at its kind of darkest in a way that you just don't at a class A deal. You see dickheads in class A deals and maybe you see some rough units and, and I don't know, maybe I shouldn't speak on class A because I don't, I don't know that space, but I can tell you that there is a part of what I do that is mentally super draining. Yeah. 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 Like days like yesterday, right? Yeah. I think we're going to take a, a brief pause on the actual deal. Cause I, I meant to get this in. Somebody might say like, how do you even get into this world? What would yeah. drive you to want to do that? I think it's a perfect opportunity to say why you're even doing this. I think you told me it was called housing. Housing you, insecure. Housing insecure. Yeah. So where did you come from that gives you maybe a little bit of uh, more empathy and understanding of now what you're trying to help flourish kind of in your career? Yeah, and 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 I'm happy to talk about it. And we talked about this beforehand. So I, I will book in this i'll say at the beginning and at the end mm -hmm. that the only like i didn't pull myself up by my bootstraps right right uh things were pretty grisly when when i was younger and uh but i had a couple of people help me out along the way and that's made all the difference mm -hmm. and so the narrative that like well elliot just wanted it more is fucking played out that's yeah it's inaccurate you know uh, and, and I'm leery of people who, who pitch that narrative. Yep. I'm more interested in people who are like, here are a couple things that went right. And, and that's made all the difference. Uh, and so, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to wind back the clock too far, but we'll start with how I got in the affordable housing business. And so I spent some time, uh, pretty lost. I, I would say I, I didn't have any money. Uh, I had no real plan. And I, at any given time had maybe $20 to my name. And, um, I was, uh, sleeping on a three season porch for a little bit, uh, at a friend's place. And that's suboptimal in new England, as you might imagine, you get space heaters out there and shit, but there's definitely a part of you that's like, I, what am I doing? You know, like, yeah. how do I, how do I fix this? Like, I don't have the money to fix this. Well, how do I get out? Uh, and then a little while later, uh, you know, I'm staying in the uh, the basement of this this pizza restaurant, and um, that's that's not so great. You know, you're like you're in a basement. There's no lights. It's I mean, you like have lights, but there's no windows. No, you know. Was there pizza? Yeah, yeah. There was there was pizza. <laughs> um, there was there was definitely pizza. Uh, and so I'm uh, helping out with odds and ends jobs, trying to figure out you know how do I how do I get out? And I'm parking cars. A buddy of mine owns this valet parking company and I'm helping out and we're valeting cars one night at uh, Smith and Lewinsky and I'm standing outside and this guy pulls up, or, you know, his driver pulls up in this beautiful S class and the guy gets out and uh, he would always wear like a, some kind of designer t-shirt and a sport coat and jeans and patent leather Jordans. And so it's, it's uh, Arthur Wynn from Wynn Companies. Uh, they're one mm -hmm. of the largest affordable housing developers in the world. Uh, and certainly at that time they were. Uh, Arthur knew the guy who owned the valet company because Arthur goes to every event. And so the guy says, uh, 
you know, Arthur, why don't you come over and meet Elliot? <clears throat> and so we're talking for a bit and Arthur was early to this event and asked me if I wanted to come in and have a beer. That right there, it's a huge break. Like you wouldn't think it, but that was, that was a big thing. And so I go in and I'm kind of talking to him for a bit and having a beer. And I, and I think about this often when I'm standing out in the backyard of my house, letting the dogs out at night. Uh, at that time, I was so tired of being poor and like freaked out that I just said, I, I don't, this guy has not worried about money in, in decades. You know, I'm, I don't care what he does. I'm going to do that thing. He could have been an insurance broker. He could work for Apple. He could, there, there's no end to the things that Arthur Wynn could have been doing for a career. And then I would have been in that job, right? I just, I didn't have anyone to tell me, why don't you think about the broad expanse of real estate? What's interesting to you? Which is advice that I would give to people who are in the real estate business. Like, it's hard to make money doing shit you hate. And so real estate is so vast. When people say they're in real estate, it could mean anything, you know. Yeah? And so if you're unsure, like look at the the entire landscape and think about what's interesting to you, what product type, what market, what piece of the, you know, you want to be a broker, lender, debt, attorney. Anyway, uh, look at those options and, and think about them. For what I didn't have, and nobody said that to me, it was Arthur Wynn, and he, you know, we talked for a bit, and then he gave me his card, and I, I think he probably figured out that I was not an idiot or an asshole, despite uh, my behavior on Twitter. Uh, I, I, I mean, I think I'm a bit of an asshole, I guess. Uh, but he, he didn't think I was a total waste of time. He gave me his card and said, you know, if you want to come by and have lunch, uh, we should chat. And so, uh, like, that was how I picked affordable housing. That was it. It was this one person in my life who was like, I will spend a little bit of time with you. And I thought about not calling him. You know, I had his business card, and I go back to parking some cars, and I go back to the fucking pizza shop. And I thought, what am I going to talk to this guy about? It was three days of me almost dismissing it, thinking I'm just, I don't know, this is sort of a non-event. But he, you know, I called him, and he said, Elliot, I'm glad you called. Had me in for lunch. He had sandwiches brought in. And um, that is kind of what started my path. Now, I never worked for him. I think it would have changed our dynamic. Over the years, He's he's talked to me about working for him a couple times. and. Uh, before I started my own thing. And it just seemed like it would have removed the one mentor I had and made him my boss. And then it would have like been bad. Um, but that's how I'm in the business. And so the more I learned about affordable housing, the more I thought like, I know why people make these decisions. Yeah, I get it. I understand that when you have $20, you're thinking about what do the next four hours look like? The idea that you can, like the long-term planning conversations that you have with your family about what are we going to do in five years? Where do we want to end up? What are we going to leave for the kids? How do we structure that? That's a luxury, right? That's a function of you have the, the present pretty well sorted out. You can begin to think. And so the longer out, the farther that timeline goes is a direct function of like how well things in your life are going right now. And so when I look at the residents in affordable housing and they do insane shit, I think, yeah, I mean, I, of course, like, I know that I get it. You're, you, that's, you, you have very few options. You said something about a lot, a lot of folks, when you don't have the present in control, you're just living like every four hours, which is basically meal to meal or, you know. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. I wonder how many people in this world 
metaphorically have that same lunch, but then never pick sit on it for three days and actually never pick up the phone. Because almost I've done 230 of these episodes. If there is one theme that is always consistent is like, I guess, unless you're a trust fund kid who just goes and works, you know, for something that's always been destined for you, almost every single thing has been serendipitous. I always joke with Johnny, um, you know, Johnny now has his own business, manages 20 podcasts. He's absolutely crushing it. We met because I sent him some random email, emailed the school. Hey, I'm looking for, you know, a young guy that can do podcasting. He shows up, just blows my socks off. And it changed his whole life, not because he met me, but because we started working together. He got into podcasting. And had we not taken that meeting, it could be different. I mean, it's just almost unequivocally. It's like these serendipitous moments. And um, and, and that's that's exactly what it is. It's a little bit of an opportunity. And you go through one door instead of the other. And I'm lucky. Now, I of course, I've worked hard. You've worked hard. Like it, Stuff wasn't just handed to me. Yep. But I was put in a position where the hard work would would pay off. And there have been a couple of times, a few pivotal mo- moments in my life that I can point to and go, that has made all of the difference. Now, if I had not done that, maybe life would have gone a different direction and then I would have seen a new opportunity and I could be designing shoes and loving life designing shoes. You, you, you don't know, right? You can't go, can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. But yeah, I, I think you need to be pretty aware and honest about a couple of things going right because you're doing i think a lot of young people a disservice by shielding the narrative of i just worked my my ass off yeah I, everything i wanted i just manifested and i just don't i, I don't buy that well if you're a teenager you know one you're just not even capable enough of making big decisions but your big break is actually meeting that gangbanger on the corner that's got the escalade and that feels like your break in the moment. It's the same conversation you had with Arthur Wynn. You're just disoriented as to in, in in two different worlds. That's the thing. Yeah. And one leads to maybe a better life and one leads to, you know, a trap. Well, and, and the thing that I say often, I'll talk about this with my team is that, um, we've got thousands of residents in our properties. You know, we have thousands of units, so that's thousands and thousands of people. There's no scenario where anyone on my team is smarter than 100% of those people. Those odds just seem low. Now, we've been, you know, given better education or given better breaks, but starting at the same place, it's not, affordable housing isn't full of dumb people. Affordable housing is full of people who have been dealt a bad hand. And that's it. Anyone, no, not anyone. There are people in our properties who could build my business better than I'm building it. A hundred percent, I believe that. Not just for you, I believe it for me, for anybody. It's I, all yeah, about opportunity. It's all right. It has, it's all about it. God made us all equal. It's it's who has opportunity and who doesn't. Yeah. All right. Um, so we know why you're in. You lived in, uh, you ate pizza in a basement for a while, which was the only highlight of that part. Yeah. Maybe stuffed crust, maybe pepperoni, who knows? Yeah. yeah. Ranch yeah. to dip it in. Yeah. It's interesting the women that you meet who are cool with, <laughs> with a guy in a basement. <laughs> it's like a, you know, uh, you got to make better decisions. And I, I met my wife when I was living out, and she wanted, my wife wanted nothing to do with me for like six months. Yeah. 
I just chased her down. She was the first woman who would say that whatever you're doing is is not okay with me. Like, I don't know. I'm just, I'm sorry. You should continue you know, dating whoever you were dating before. And I was like, no, no, no. I, like, I can figure this out. But yeah. 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 It's an interesting world. All right. So I want to maybe then not go down the fastball. I think it's, uh, let's stick to the 1974-ish property. So you underwrite it. We've looked at the pipe. We've we've negotiated a deal. I want to talk about one, what are you actually physically doing? But I really want to get into the meat of how resident programs and how things take shape to actually turn these things around um, from a people perspective. Yeah, so we buy a mid-70s Section 8 deal and, uh, you know, or sometimes there are tax credit deals that that weren't new construction. They were just rehabbed using the tax credit program. So they could be mid-80s built, but you buy an older deal and you you square away what you understand to be true about the CapEx. And I can't say that enough. It's really, really important that you get a good handle on the big ticket items. You know this from industrial. There's like four things that can go wrong, but when they go wrong, that zeroes out the deal. And that's probably more true in industrial than it is in multifamily because there's not as many moving pieces, but all of them are substantial, right? And so... We get really, really good. I've got an unbelievable project manager on my team who's very, very good at estimating CapEx. And we go and we do walkthroughs and we hire third-party PCR companies. And some of that is, I think, a a, a PCR is a property condition report. Um, It is also just a a luxury of the size of the deals that we're buying that we can layer on a lot of these upfront transaction costs and it's a rounding error in the scale of the deal. But if you're buying smaller stuff and you don't want to pay 10 grand to have a, a third party come in and do a PCR report. You need to really understand your CapEx. Yep. Um, what condition are your, are your ACs in? And are you able to programmatically replace them? Uh, what's the condition, just the unit interiors in general, and are they competitive in the market? And if they're not, what is it going to take to get them competitive? And spend some time walking your comps. Don't just kind of eyeball it on Google. You have to go and feel that unit. You have to tour. And, and you'll find that a lot of Property managers are fine showing you around. Yeah, whatever, sure, you want to look at the building, look at the building. Uh, so understand what it's going to take to make your your property competitive. Make sure you're comfortable with the CapEx. And um, so construction starts, right? But the main thing that we're also trying to work on is what are the resident service programs that we can provide to the residents? Is it And it varies property by property. Sometimes it's lunch programs in the summer for the kids because that that gap when school's out, they're missing that lunch. That's paid for by the owner. Paid for by the owner. Yeah. Okay. Paid for by the owner. Sometimes it's paid for, like we'll partner with HEB and HEB might donate the supplies. Okay. And I pay a person, like put the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches together, whatever it is. You get a lot of community support on okay. those things. So um, sometimes it's stuff like that. A lot of our properties have computer labs. And so you're doing job training, you're doing financial literacy, you're doing GED programs, you're doing whatever it is uh, that you think might be of service. Some some projects we do um, like an after school program with big community rooms. And so we have staff who will come in. One of the things that you hear from uh, parents who are, are trying to make ends meet is that I can't necessarily get a full-time job because my kid gets out of school too. And I can't tell my boss I have to leave at one to, to pick my kid up. And so if you can provide a little shoulder relief, uh, those programs have been helpful. On our senior deals, we do lots of activities that are really just geared around getting the seniors out of their apartments and into the community in general. And so that could be, uh, you know, bingo night. It could be a Valentine's Day dance. It, it 
changes community by community. And I lean on the property managers a lot to say, here's what I think that we need. And that is, it's mutually beneficial. I'm always, I try to be clear about like what we both get in that trade. It's not purely altruistic. Like it does matter and we should provide those services. But if you can provide services to your residents, it, it helps their frame of mind. They tend to feel like the owner gives a shit. They tend to take a little bit better care of the place. Maybe they pay rent a little more on time. Uh, you can see when you implement those programs, your retention goes up, your turnover costs are lower, and your incidents at the property go down. And are you partnering with third-party companies to do these, or are you running almost your own hospitality business that is spinning these things up in the community? We The services are provided at the property level. We don't hire one third-party company or management company. We work with them, and sometimes we need to hire an additional person on that property's payroll to run these programs. Uh, we, as a team, with our management company and the property management site staff, decide what programs we think would be beneficial. In the tax credit world, uh, during the first 15 years, a lot of times those programs are laid out very specifically. Here's what the property needs to provide. We are often buying things after the first 15 years. And so those resident service program requirements are, are gone. Now, we don't eliminate them from the budget. We keep them, but we have a lot more flexibility around what type of service we want to provide. I was working on a program. We wanted to pilot a home ownership program where I would set aside 10% of the rent that the residents pay. And I talked about this idea on Twitter a while ago. I'm like, okay, well, help me. Tell me what's wrong here. Tell me what could go wrong. And so the basic premise was set aside 10% of the rent. And in order to be in the program, the residents have to attend like a quarterly meeting where you're learning about the basics of home ownership. That's not just a mortgage, that there's closing costs, that there's a quarterly water bill, that there's utilities. And, and, and so really focusing on just the goal of home ownership, because I think home ownership, home ownership is the biggest ticket out of low income. Like if you can stop giving me your money and start putting it into a house, and I don't buy that a house is an investment. I think people give you that pitch. Maybe it's, I think it's nonsense, but it's a forced savings account. Mm -hmm. And it just makes you build equity in the thing so that over time, there's some money there, right? Uh, and if you're in a low-income community and you can do that, and then you buy a house, you build equity, there's countless studies that show that kids do better in school, that crime goes down. And it's just unbelievable the benefits of owning a home. So I thought... That should be my focus. I want to put people in houses. And I'm going to set aside 10% of the rent, and that's going to be the amount of money that I contribute as a down payment on a house for someone who ends up leaving our community to buy a house. And the I would think that the number of people, we couldn't roll this out, and I'll get to why we couldn't roll it out, uh, the number of people who could take advantage of that, maybe it's 5%. Because there's a lot that has to happen for you to go from living in low-income housing to having the life skills necessary to buy a home. Uh, but let's say that a certain percentage of people are able to do it. So the rent's a thousand bucks a month. That's 12,000. You know, let's say they're in there for, you're a renter, you're in my place for uh, five years. You paid me $60,000 in rent over five years. I owe you $6,000. I don't actually owe it to you, but we just have an agreement that if you buy a home, I'll show up at the closing table with $6,000 towards your down payment. If you're getting an FHA loan and you only have to put a small amount down, that could matter. Right. And so I thought, wow, what a what a great program. Put it out on Twitter and said, people who are smarter than me, tell me what problems you see. And so a lot of it came around liability and stuff like that. And so I called uh one of those ambulance chasing personal injury attorneys and said to him, Here's the pitch. 
how would you sue me? Right? This tenant moves out, they get divorced or something happens and they leave. And they decide that, that I, it wasn't going to be a credit for a house. They think that I owe them that money, that I was holding it for them. It's not, it's not just that like, I promise to pay you, but if you leave, like there's no extra cost to the program. It's just a thing I was doing to be nice. But I said, set that aside. How would you sue me? And he said, well, one, one tenant being owed $5,000 and $6,000 is not terribly interesting to me. But if you're doing that at the property level, and I would look at all your properties and I would try and roll up some kind of class action thing against you and say, you know, you owe us all this money. I said, really? He said, yeah. Like, I know that's not the news you're looking for, but yes, there's, there's a lot of liability. I'd find a way to sort of fuck with you. And I don't think he's wrong. And I don't think he's the only one. And so the only way that I could roll this program out now would be is if it went through a state of housing, like, like Georgia Department of Community Affairs. I talked to them about doing this at a property. They love the idea. But I'm going to have to convince them to basically take on the liability. I'm going to have to say, I'll give you the money. And then you give it to the tenant. Like it's got to be a state sponsored thing because the ambulance chasers aren't going to sue the state of Georgia over this. They'd sue me and try and use me as the vehicle to pull money out of my insurance company. Uh, and you can probably imagine how interested state housing agencies are in adopting new one off programs for owners. They're just like, look, it's a great idea, but I, you know, now's not the time. Yeah. And so you like, I don't know, it's sort of discouraging. I thought it would be a fun project. And, Thank God for ambulance chasers. <laughs> um, the only other idea I had added onto that, we don't have to go too deep into it, is if your business was actually a broker also, not only could you save the money, but if you found them the house, you'd get the 3% buyer's commission back. It might actually sweeten it up. I know you don't want to get in that business. It was just a, something that came to mind. But I, I also thought about building the homes and like, <laughs> and like, could that work? And what if you just built them to like, help people. Like if you were able to sort of build them at cost, but there's just an untold scenario where people are like that guy is preying upon these people and he's putting them in a home that he's building for profit. You know, uh, this, it's sort of tangentially related, but you talk about services and, and the amount of money and affordable housing. And I want people, if they haven't turned off this uh, podcast, cause they're tired of my sad stories by now. Um, the, the best way to view affordable housing in our country is that it's sort of a barometer for how much or how little we give a shit about those who are at the very bottom, right? And so over time, you can see that barometer move and it sort of undulates out into the future. And sometimes affordable housing programs get cut or, or social services at schools get cut or school lunch programs get cut or whatever it is. Uh, and so the barometer has swung in one direction and we sort of decide that we don't really give a shit about poor people for a while. And then it kind of gets bad and and then a new affordable housing program gets created or more money for the low-income housing tax credit is released. And then we care a little bit more, but, uh, that's it. I mean, it's it, the whole affordable housing program is just a big mirror that we hold up to society. And we say, here's how much we, we care or don't care. Is there any real solution? I mean, in today's, especially in today's environment where housing of all types is just skyrocketing. And like, I'm not saying be president for a day from a political standpoint, but if you had kind of nobody that could stop you, is there a real logical plan other than governments going like, yeah, build as much of this stuff as you can, which still might not actually be the answer. Is this just part of life? Like you've seen a lot, like it, maybe it's not eradicating the situation as a whole, but this is one good way to make a dent that's real, that's reasonably possible. 
I I think you're not, I, I don't think anyone's going to like the answer. It's funny. I was asked this question yesterday. I had lunch with a broker and he said, what's the solution? And I, I don't know that there is one. Yeah. I, I'm trying to be careful about, um, you know, I say often on Twitter that uh, the best thing you can be is someone who understands the edges of their expertise. And so I talk about affordable housing. I talk about real estate funds. I talk about invest. It's pretty narrow, right? I don't want to dip into like public policy. There's things, I mean, hey, if there were more subsidy programs that could get created, the problem is you can't provide someone on Twitter DM me and said, could you, what's the solution? Right? That was the question. What's the solution? You can't provide below market rate housing without subsidy. Like you just, you just can't do it because then you're banking on, if there's no subsidy, you're just banking on the goodwill of developers to lower the rent. And a lot of times, I mean, you know, and, and a lot of the developers who listen to this, the margins are pretty tight. It's not like we're just making 50% profit on every single deal and we could lower the rent if we wanted, but we don't. Some of the margins are tight on these deals. Yeah. And so it's very hard to rent below market without some type of subsidy. Now, Section 8 is an ongoing subsidy. The low-income housing tax credit is an upfront subsidy. Uh, at times when rates were really high, there were certain programs that the federal government had that were below market interest rate subsidies. So instead of paying 9% on your mortgage, you would get it subsidized down to 1% in exchange for keeping the rents low. Like There's always some kind of a trade. Uh, making it easier to build all types of housing by right, whether it's affordable or market rate housing, uh, would certainly help. But it is, I, I, it's it's going to be an ongoing problem, and the people who stand to benefit from the income disparity are the wealthiest, who have the most most control over how public policy is shaped. Yeah, right. I mean, that's that's just true. It would take a structural change across the country, and that seems very very hard. I do think. Uh, boy, I want to be careful about dipping into, into politics. I think that term limits would be super helpful because I think then you might get people in office who wanted to see the the country improved and who felt like they had to work it out, uh, Democrat or Republican, that they would try and find some commonality to get stuff done. The idea that you've got a bunch of 80-year-olds who've been in politics forever and are, and are worth a lot of money and making these decisions, I, I, I think that that's bad. I want to be careful that I'm not a, not a, yeah. You know, poli sci major. I'm not a politician, I, but it just seems to me that if if you could bring politics back to you are going to spend four, eight, twelve years, whatever it is, whatever we sort of determine is a reasonable limit, you're going to spend some time serving the greater good, and then you're going to go do another thing. If politics was a thing that uh, people could do because they cared, and then move on to a different thing and not a career, uh, I think that you might see a lot of different social programs. You might see people who look around and go, things are kind of fucked up, but I, they're not that fucked up. I mean, it's fixable. Yeah. Um, but there's right now very much a system that's not, I mean, term limits are never going to happen. No, and our politicians are, um, it's an on-ramp to becoming a brilliant hedge fund manager, basically. Um, yep, it is. Yeah, a real thought leader in the space. Yeah, yeah. If you're ever writing your bio and you think I'm a thought leader, don't write that. Yeah, don't don't, don't write that, man. And yeah, someone else has got to call you that. That's like, you know, when a girl says oh, I'm one of the guys, and you're like, well, is that true or is it just like a thing that, like, I don't know that that's true. You know, um, are, are you actually a thought leader? Did someone say that? Like, hey, Chris Powers is the leading guy on industrial. We're just yeah. like, I need a fucking bio. Here's what I'm gonna write. You don't don't no thought leaders here. No. 
Okay, there's one thing to bring community programs to a property. Mm -hmm. But this is a very delicate situation. It's almost like art to do this in a way that you're not bringing politics into it, uh, the media into it, is how do you turn over a property? Because if you buy a property that's in shambles, bad culture, um, a lot of crime issues, a lot of the heavy lifting is retenanting this place. Mm -hmm. On one end, you have to get the problem out. On the other end, you have to get um, new folks that are willing to go, okay, that property has always been the one that nobody wanted to, to live at, but now it's changed. That in and of itself is like- Yeah, it's a lift. It's a lift. It's a lift for sure. And so I think as, as we got about, you know, we got some time, but I think this is a really important part. It's one thing to buy something, know where your rents can go, know that you can implement these programs, but you can't even implement these programs until you've begun what we'll call the lift. So you close, you have your rent roll, you've probably identified going into closing, let's say it's 200 units. And, and, and again, a lot of the problems are in five to 10% of the units. So let's say you've identified where the 20 units are that you're gonna have to work on. What happens? Uh, if we identify the problem tenants, I just evict them. Okay, right? but I mean, they don't. I'm I'm gonna guess they don't all go. Yeah, we're out of here. Thanks for telling us we're gone. Yeah, no, they they don't all they don't all leave. Um, how we get them out? And 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 before that, I don't mean to interrupt. I try and do a good job of not interrupting. I'm assuming you're bringing in new management, so you, the old managers are gone. They were probably part of the problem, letting things exist. But are the people that are that you're hiring, are they having any different type of training or understanding of this? So you're bringing people that understand what they're walking into. Yeah, we're bringing in new people. We retenant the property. We plan on turning a property over in about four years. Damn. Right. Um, you can underwrite it tighter and say, everyone, we're going to turn it in, you know, two years. But the like the logistics of fully renovating and turning every unit in two years is you're making a lot of assumptions about tenant turnover. Uh, affordable housing, um, the, the reason that you can retenant you know, over that time is just sort of a function of their, their job, that a lot of people in affordable housing are living wherever the work is. So they're not w working at Fort Capital every single day and building a life around that. They're working for a job, maybe they get laid off and they have to go to another job. It's a lot of turnover. You're turning half your units every year, right? And so you will have some longer term tenants who stay there and uh, you kind of work on that program with them. What we have found is a lot of these tenants, they're just sort of looking at like, you know, price, I don't, don't want to say price per pound because it's a broker term, but they're looking at like in the market, well, I can just live here for 800 bucks. But if we make it nicer, they're happy to, if it's a thousand, they'll have, they'll pay a thousand. They're just saying, if I'm going to, if the goal is low rent, then I'll put up with the bullshit. But if they're going to fix my place, that's fine. Then I'll, I'll pay more for a nicer place. Um, yeah, you, you have to get them out. You have to get the, the problem tenants out. And that, that can be tough. I mean, we had a, a DEA incident. Um, uh, you know, that, that was sort of spicy. You know, how, how we get them out is, um, I don't know. I mean, we've, we've got our ways. I have to assume that at some on a long enough timeline, this podcast gets played back in court. So I don't, I don't know how into the uh, removal process. Yeah, we don't you know, have to. I, but but there's like, you know, we, we get uh, actively involved in 
in the, working through The purpose that. is really to highlight for somebody that's thinking I might this might be a thing for me is if you go into a, an, an A property or a B property, when you're turning over units, it's mainly maybe because, you know, they're... Uh, they haven't paid rent. Maybe you know they're they're playing their music too loud. But when we go into what we're talking about in some of these rougher areas, you know, a whole gang can live in a community. So it's not just one unit. They're all yeah. It, you're not just removing a person. You are changing an entire culture of a place. And so I'm more highlighting this just to speak to the work that's actually being done. You're changing an entire community. Yeah, yeah. And so there's a couple of things that we do kind of right off is if we know it's a rough community, we'll bring in security and we install the brightest lights you can possibly buy. I always joke around that I want to light that fucker up like a Christmas tree. Like <laughs> you can see our properties. If you fly into one of the cities that we own property and I joke that you can see it at night because like, there it is. Yeah. We light it up. I want the residents to be able to read a book with the lights off in their living room. Yeah. Because that criminals flee, they, they they don't like the dark, and so you don't have to be the most secure property in in your area just to be more secure than the alternatives, and they'll dissipate. So right. we bring in a security team, we install cameras that are monitored, we light the place up, and criminals for the most part, like I don't know, they're kind of like rattlesnakes. I say this because I saw a rattlesnake for the first time last night; it blew my fucking mind. <laughs> um, it almost. Well, I shouldn't say it almost bit me, but I was like pulled over on the side of the road at night in Texas peeing and then like things rattling at me and I freaked out. And, <laughs> um, yeah, it's been a, it's been a rough 24 hours. And, uh, for the most part, criminals are kind of like rattlesnakes and that they can be super dangerous at times, but they just don't want to be bothered. So they're not blind. If they see painters coming in, roofers, construction going on, we're upgrading the clubhouse, we're putting in lights, there's security. Like they just recognize that, okay, someone now cares about this place yeah. and I'm going to go to a place they don't care about. We had an incident at one of our properties uh, here in Texas and we knew it was a, a tough tenant base when we bought it and we underwrote. So I guess if you're buying a tough deal, I would say you need to underwrite a wild amount of bad debt, a ton of concessions and really high vacancy. And if you're listening, you think, well, but if I do that, then I'm not going to be able to buy the deal. Well, then maybe it's not a deal you should buy. Like, it's hard to find a good deal. I, I can talk about yeah, that well, later. Yeah, well, we're going to end on that. Yeah. Um, but we get a call from, uh, I get a call from property manager, and she said the DEA came in and said that they're watching some of our units. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, maybe. But so I called the, the DEA, and I got transferred to the local field office. I just said, I own a property. Some people came in and represented that they were your agents and that you're watching our property. And I just want to confirm that it's correct. And if it is, see if there's anything that I can do to help. And they said, yeah, you have a, you have a cartel problem. And I was like, oh, fucking awesome. Oh, you know, yeah. like, yeah, terrific. I am, <laughs> this is really good news. They said, yeah, this is the largest fentanyl distribution hub in this market. The Sinaloa we, cartel. Yeah. The Sinaloa cartel. Um, and, and they, right. And I didn't know this. I was just buying some distressed real estate. And they said, no, we've been doing, so even before we bought the property, they said, no, we've been doing uh, undercover buys on on this property for the better part of a year. This is maybe two months after we bought it. Better part of a year. We think we've narrowed it down to a couple units. Uh, we could use some vacants to set up and to watch the units that we think it is. And then they also said, uh, here's some of the people that we're looking for. Could you send your maintenance guys in to like do a maintenance request on a unit and see if they can ID the people? And I was like, no. 
like I'm I'm happy to help. I don't want the cartel like terrorizing people on our property. And I think fentanyl is killing kids like crazy, and that's bad. But I'm not going to send my staff in to ID the people that you are watching. Like very clearly, I'm, we're not going to do that. So uh, we set them up in these units. And they said that the staff will give you 60 seconds notice before we serve. They served a no-knock warrant. They did it in the middle of the night. And they swept a bunch of units. They impounded a bunch of cars. And it was super low-key. There was like, I mean, in, out. Like, tow trucks came in in a row and yanked all the cars. They had, you know, teams there. And they just took all the doors at the same time, pulled everyone out of the units. And they found it was like, you know, 10, 12-something thousand Oxycontin pills laced with fentanyl, a couple of bricks of fentanyl, and then a case with like an un, you know, what do you say, a six foot, six foot safe with a to be determined amount of cash. And so that actually worked out for us, right? We just we got, we got lucky. Those were the bad elements. And people don't like drug dealers, they're not dumb, they're just criminals. And so they don't come back to the place that the DEA just raided. They're not like, oh, we should, we know what we should do. We should set up there again. No way they'll, they won't look for us here. So a lot of that element is gone. The people who are coming in to pick up are gone. Uh, you know, we don't always get the DA to do our cleanout work for us, but yeah. In the property financials, was there a spike in NOI? Did you keep the cash or did you have to give that to the DEA? Uh, the DEA made us keep okay. it. Well, I said, so well, that's not something yeah. you can underwrite. Yeah, I said, yeah, we were going to write, I swear. So what I should have done was book it under other income and given it to a dipshit broker and be like, put a four cap on this and put it out on the market. Uh, no, they did not let us. Uh, I said, well, I'm happy to help count the cash. They're like, yeah, I'm sure you are. We're going to take a few from Twitter and then we'll bring it home. You've been generous. He says a good investment has a simple thesis, two to three levers you can pull that drive 95% of your returns. Can you get him to expand on that a little bit? Sure. So, uh, and, and some of this is a function of, I think when you're new and getting into investing and I know it's true for real estate, I can't speak to other circles, it's probably true for the stock market as well, but uh, you're looking at a potential investment. And when you're new, you're trying to find what are all of the things that I can do to improve this investment. And I walked a property yesterday and the broker was giving me all this low hanging fruit that they like to call. He's like, oh, well, you could add some yards on a few of the two bedrooms, get another $80. You can uh, raise your garage rent from 85 to hundred. You can, you know, he's kind of talking about all these little things around the margins. And when I first started, I'd look for all the stuff. Can we reduce the vacant, you know, the, the, the cost of electricity in the vacant units? Can I bring that from 20,000 to 15,000 a year? Can I cut the trash contract a little bit? Can I do, and all of that is part of good asset management and good property management. And all those little moves are correct, but it's not an investment thesis. You now need 15 things to go right. And you nibble enough shit around the edges and Excel will tell you, okay, this is now a 15% return, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not, that's not a reason to invest. You have to look for like, and I say two to three moves. You got to look at the property and pull out all the noise and go fundamentally what we are doing here is we're doing a value add program and we're going to bring rents from $800 to $1,000. And I know that that is true because I look at the comps and the type of project, type of product that they are delivering and they are getting $1,000. And so if we spend X per door, we're going to get there. And that you, you, you can't look at like other income and trim a little expense. It has to be really super simple, right? Because you know, when you're talking to investors, you have to be able to say, here's what we're going to do. Yep. Uh, and it and, and the two to three moves don't need to be overly complex. In fact, I think the, the more complex 
the the worse the thesis is. But you've just got to have like one or two, you know, or two or three things that in your bones you go, we can do these things and move rent from, you know, a million dollars a year to one point two million dollars a year, and no matter what happens, I'm confident that that's correct. Yep. And so you find that like one move, and then you're looking for another and. Uh, believe it or not, the move is not to just drop the exit cap and excel as much as people love to think that that's the move. Uh, the other thing could be, especially in the affordable world, are there things that we can do uh, to reduce our property taxes? Is there a, a way that we can set up a partnership with a nonprofit? Is there something that we can do with the local housing authority where we enter into some kind of a management agreement with them or they... Uh, you ground lease it to them in a partnership and your taxes, you get a 25% abatement or whatever it is. A known thing that is agreed to. Not I think, but I know. And you iron that out in diligence. But So another concrete lever that you go, well, fuck, if we can take, if our property taxes are 500000 now and we can cut them down to 350000 and we know that we can do that because we're going to do X, Y, Z, that's a second move. So you know you're going to do something with the rent structure and you know you're going to do something with your taxes or or maybe uh, you you own a ton of units and you have volume pricing on insurance and the owner is paying 900 a unit, but you just have a bulk rate and you can get um, 600 a unit. Yeah. Again, it's got to be a thing that you know, yeah. a thing that you know to be true. It could be that you've got um, like a master credit facility across your entire portfolio at 2.4%. And so you know that you can buy at market and still generate above market returns because you have advantageous debt lined up. The The, the point here is that these things are rare and they're hard to find. Yeah. Right. You got to look. You do it all the time. You guys see tons of industrial deals. Yep. And what is it? One or two percent hit rate? Where you think this is super interesting to us? I get it. Right. You walk the property. You go, this makes sense. Yeah. We're gonna do this and this, and this thing's great. And that gets you ninety-five percent of the way there on your returns. And then all that little stuff you do around the margins, great. If rent growth outperforms, terrific. Like those are all tailwind effects that are that are that are wonderful. Uh, but I would caution anybody, if you can't explain how you're going to move 95% of your return doing two things, it's the wrong investment, I I think, yeah. right? I don't invest in that stuff. Yeah. I got into a bit of a uh, a back and forth uh, with it. There's a young broker on Twitter. And I said, if your deal, we're talking about like brokerage fees, and it was like, it should be a 2% fee or a 3% fee. Uh, Taylor seems like a super nice guy. And he said... Uh, I've seen a reduction in fees go from make a good deal, a great deal. And I don't know him and I didn't want to get into a thing, but that's just bullshit. Yeah. Like that's, that's 1%. If one person, less, less than 1% of your total basis, when you look at your value add this, if less than 1% moves the needle on the deal, makes it a great deal from a good deal, it was a bad deal. It's a shit deal. Yep. Right. And so you have to be able to look like, what are the what are the two things I'm going to do here? Two or three things. And those two or three things, as time goes by and you get more experienced, you can identify. Like you should know it almost immediately. You know. If you're sitting there for weeks, like mining for what those two things could be, it's not the right deal. It's just not the right deal. And and the sunk cost fallacy is real. Don't like grind on a deal because it's in a cool part of town or beautiful building, and you want to make it work. Yeah. Because if you lie to yourself enough days in a row on enough cells in Excel, eventually the deal works. Yeah. Right? So you're 100% right. You can walk an industrial deal by now and go, yep. You know immediately. You know it. You've like sized it and you're like, all right, I think this makes sense. You go, you walk the property and inside you go, 
fuck yeah. yeah. And you don't say anything. You just like dead eye the seller or the broker. And you go, I guess it's interesting. You come back here and you're like, no one's going home. We are tightening up the model. We're going to get this shit done. Get the offer out. And you know, and it takes time and it takes reps. And it's helpful to have someone show you that. So I had people show me. I didn't just figure that out. I had people who really humbling experience for them to be ultra sophisticated institutional investors, right? High net worth investors. Uh, some of them invest in these syndicated real estate deals and, and yeah. fine. And maybe maybe they're smart. They are obviously smart in their field to become high net worth, but they're not sophisticated real estate investors. Right. We're taking our money from institutions. I would pitch them my 15 move deal and they would chew me out. And I felt like I'm, I'm an idiot. You yeah. Know? Like, so it takes time to get it takes time. Yeah. All right, let's finish on your kind of view of the market. I mean, the the multi market's just gone up and up and up and up for a long time. Again, you've been kind of vocal lately that things are changing. Maybe we're not in Kansas as much anymore. Like at the same time, they're not building a lot more of this stuff um, at the rate that we need to, at least. So, like, how are you feeling right now? What what's the game plan for M Stanfield? Uh to just lowball sellers, right? We've got the ability, we can close cash and we just sort of push them around. And we say, I understand you want X, I'm gonna give you 20% of X, cash, no contingencies. But I know that that advice is not particularly useful for everyone who's listening. It's like, all right, man, oh, great for you. You know, awesome, but that doesn't help me. And are you looking all over the country? Yeah, we're looking, uh, you know, Texas, Georgia, Florida, um, Southeast Belt. stuff. Yeah, yeah, Sunbelt stuff. Uh, I I just like the growth story here. You know, there's spot markets in the Carolinas that are interesting. I love Nashville and Knoxville. I don't like Memphis, just and, and right, just like the population loss and that kind of stuff. So, um, what do I think is going to happen? I want to be very careful that I can only give you my opinion on the affordable housing business. Yeah, right. So, my you I have an opinion on hotels, just like you do, but you don't invest in an opinion. That's mm -hmm. not right. So, affordable housing at its core is. And I, I hate the term risk adjusted because I think that's a bullshit metric that every GP uses to fit their narrative, you know. Um, but the pitch for affordable housing has always been it's fixed income risk and MES returns, right? You get in the you know, mid-teen, mid to low teen return, and you're the lowest cost housing provider in a given market. So uh say that again, your fixed cost fixed income risk, yeah, MES returns. Okay. Right. That's how I explain it to people who have some familiarity with investing in financial markets, but they don't know affordable housing. They tell me what I'm getting into here. You've come a long way since you were in the pizza basement. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. It's been uh, it's been a ride, man. It has. It has been a ride. So, what do I think is going to happen in affordable housing? I I think that it's going to continue to chug along at you know three percent a year. Um, I think that there are going to be. You, I don't think you're going to find as many distressed sellers in the who own true affordable product because uh you it tends to be a more sophisticated buyer pool in the affordable housing space than the market rate space but there's some naturally occurring affordable housing which is just like market rate product that happens to be cheap that we buy and we do some interesting affordable housing stuff with and we're talking about two to three moves i see those deals there's two or three moves we make a pile of money on them yeah uh that stuff i think is going to come around there are a lot of sellers who maybe are over levered or they underwrote some pretty aggressive rent growth. I think you're going to see some, I am already seeing some, some distress in the kind of class C space. I'm sure it's spilling out in other spaces. I, I just don't operate in them. Um, look, I'm continuing to buy affordable housing. I, I think we're always buying. I said this in my newsletter, I'm too stupid to top and bottom tick markets. And if you think you can yeah. top and bottom tick markets, man, good for you. Yeah. I'll sell you all my stuff. I'm sure you're a wizard. Uh, so we're just, 
uh, we're, you know, our model is reacting to a series of changing inputs. That's all you can do. As the debt gets more expensive, your spread widens. As the debt gets more expensive, your exit cap is going to expand a bit. Um, what is the concern around inflation with affordable housing tenants where every dollar is already spoken for? That gets tricky. Like, how do you increase rent at 2 or 3% per year when the cost of everything else in their life has gone up 20%? Right? It's constantly a trade in our field between... Uh, housing and, and shelter and food, you know, and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, what we are seeing is that it's harder for us to hire staff, hire, harder for us to hire maintenance staff, office staff. We're having to pay more. You're, you may be seeing that as well. You have mm -hmm. to pay more for people. So across the board, I think you're seeing pressure on lower income wages to come up a bit. Uh, I, I want to, you know, I'm careful not to make too many predictions. I can just tell you that we're, we're still out there and we're still buying, but yeah. it has to be the right deal. It's still the same thing. It's still a hundred deals to, to find the one you want. Yep. We're buying. If, if you're in the, uh, we're in the capital deployment business. We're not in the time, the market business. And, um, the truth is if you do enough deals over time, every now and again, you'll stub your toe. It's just the law of numbers. But I tell people all the time, why are you selling or why are you buying? I'm like, just all the fun this what this works right now yeah and i i'm buying now because i'm buying a deal where there's two or three moves that i yeah. see that i believe in and people say even in this market yeah even in even in this market well and to what you said i think i mean if we really take the the sun belt there's just some things going on in the sun belt that are very interesting that over time we haven't seen population growth and in, in inflows like this and historically speaking so there's I don't think we're all one big happy market. It's it's broken up. Yeah, and I think, you know, class A can be very tough to project rent growth because often for new development, you're trying to hit the top of the market. You want to be on the right block and the right... I know it's a very difficult space. In no way am I suggesting it's easy. It's very hard. The affordable housing is more of a macro bet on lagging indicators. Like, is this place experiencing growth? And if yes, then I would like to buy the cheapest housing solution there because there's inevitably going to be some kind of displacement and and so yeah i mean of, of, of course yeah all right um we covered a lot of ground today thank you for coming to yeah, fort worth it's, it's been fun i'm glad i we, love fort worth to everybody listening uh m stanfield is an super exceptional and, and a real and a real human being and a real super guy yep. super super handsome big <laughs> muscles um yeah this was a treat yeah, this has been fun. Thanks, man. Uh, yeah, thank you. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.